Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, coming to you from the third sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark here in Washington, D.C., where, for some reason, it's October and it's still summertime. It is incredibly hot where we are right now. Uh, Corey Shockey, who's with us from uh, evening time in Covent Garden, it's cooler there, right? <laughs> it's freezing cold. I'm so homesick for the Indian summer of California. Yeah, well, yeah, this is, I got to tell you, in D.C., it's like hellfire, but maybe there are some other explanations for that. Joining us here <laughs> in D.C., we have Kelly Magsman, a vice president of the new of Center for New American Progress and Center for American Progress. And in uh, New York City, we have Max Boot of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of a great new book, which we will be talking about more in the course of this episode on the course of his Dealing with what it means to be a conservative in America. Um, hi, Max. Hi there. Um, so let's let's pick up and let's use some examples of what's going on around the world uh, to um, get into some of the deeper subjects that we want to get into here. Uh, the Secretary of State of the United States right now is in Korea. Um, you were in Korea not too long ago, weren't you, Kelly? Um, and, uh, we were talking before we came on the air and you were saying that you see some differences in the views of the Koreans towards the situation in the Koreas than Washington. Maybe we can start with that. Yeah, sure. Uh, I was in Seoul a couple of weeks ago and I, I think what I was most struck by, uh, this was before, uh, President Moon had gone to North Korea for the last summit. What I was struck by was that South Koreans were very, very optimistic about, uh, the, the the peace process between the North and the South, but also uh, optimistic about the potential for U.S. Uh, DPRK, nuclear diplomacy. And I was struck by it because there was so much optimism versus some of the cynicism you feel in Washington. I mean, many of us sort of, especially us North Korea hands, we tend to, you know, watch every move and criticize uh, every potential outcome. Uh, and there was just a, a complete disconnect in how we were viewing the problem. And actually, I was quite worried when I left uh, Seoul that we might be headed towards some sort of an alliance split because I knew that many of the president's senior advisors uh, were pushing back against some of the diplomacy and, you know, sort of suggesting that progress was not being made. And I actually started to wonder whether or not, you know, President Moon could deliver enough uh, with Kim Jong-un to keep the United States uh, satisfied on the nuclear diplomacy. It turns out he delivered just enough after that summit. Uh, and now, of course, uh, the Secretary of State has just had his, uh, what, fourth visit, fifth visit uh, to Pyongyang and has come out with a series of outcomes. And it looks like we're headed uh, back to another 
uh, summit. So it'll be episode number two, Summit at Mar-a-Lago uh, for, wow. for, for President Trump. That's what I predict, but we'll see. Um, so, I mean, I think certainly uh, the South Koreans are all in on inter-Korean peace. It matters a lot to them. They live there. <laughs> Clearly, they have family uh, in North Korea. And the United States has still got its eye on the, on the nuclear ball, which hasn't progressed very much. So we'll see uh, what happens. I just have this image of Kim Jong-un being welcomed into the honeymoon suite at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> oh, David, I really do. Please don't. <laughs> yeah. I've, just... I've been wondering when the Times is going to run their, their wedding announcement for Trump and Kim. <laughs> Actually, somebody ought to write a modern romance column yes. for the New oh, York yeah. Times oh, on, yes. on Kim and Trump. That would be a fantastic opportunity uh, for a parody. Um, but but Corey, you know, as we look at the way these things are playing out in 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 North Korea, you know, one of the things we've learned is never take the first U.S. press release um, as 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 a statement of what's really happening. You know, so Pompeo Wait, comes out. We only learn this now. Well, we're, <laughs> that's a good point. But, you know, Pompeo comes out and says, we've had great meetings. Everything is is fine. And then the negotiator who recently hired and and very well respected Steve Began comes out and he says, well, we're 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 trying to make enough progress on each of the four pillars so that we can get to the next summit. And this sort of picks up on Kelly's point, which is, you know, from the point of view of the South Koreans, they want to make as much progress as they can towards, you know, normalization of relations from the point of view of the North Koreans. They want to do just as little as they can to keep the processes alive and not give up anything nuclear. From the point of view of the Americans, particularly, you know, the president, he just wants there to be the appearance of a process. And this has led to this kind of serial incrementalism. Um, You know, this could go on well into the Ivanka Trump administration. Is that... (laughs) (laughs) I... Um, I will resist the temptation. No, I won't. To uh, to joke that I'll call in the airstrike on our own position in the in the Ivanka Trump administration. As my father would would have said, my father, the former artillery officer, would have said, "That's a waste of perfectly good ammunition." If we get to that point. <laughs> Um, So my view on the Korean issue very strongly shaped, is very strongly shaped by two extraordinarily talented analysts. One, Sumi Terry, an expert (laughs) on Korea, and the other... Why are you laughing, Max? Why are you laughing, Max? Uh, Well, because I see Sue in the next room, because for some strange reason I can't quite figure out, she and I seem to have the same mailing address. (laughs) <laughs> You're a lucky man, Max Booch. He's wonderful in addition to being cracklingly smart on issues Korea and far beyond. That is true. Um, and, uh, and if you like, one I'll of, just go and put her on, on this on <laughs> on North Korea. Two for the price of one. Wow. Uh, what I learned, among the things I learned from Sue about uh, – about the Korean situation is that President Trump's reckless talk about a preventative strike in North Korea 
might not have scared the North Koreans, but it sure scared the South Koreans and, and gave a lot of incentives for uh, diplomacy between the two Koreas to, to try and marginalize the U.S. It's the first concrete example I can think of of an American ally hedging against American policy because they considered us potentially as dangerous as their adversary. And so the activism by the South Korean government to try and take this out of U.S. hands because of the recklessness of President Trump, a former national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, um, and, and others, that's one strong strain. The second strong strain is it looks to me like the Secretary of State has, has made an incredibly shrewd political judgment that he is himself committed to policies he has very little likelihood of being able to deliver on. And therefore, uh, the popularity of special envoys returns <laughs> as somebody, <laughs> somebody expendable when when you run out of runway. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, now special. I have an like, enormous amount of... Like the, like the penal of... battalions that, that Stalin would send to march through the minefields. <laughs> Absolutely. I have an enormous amount of respect for Steve Began, who I consider a personal friend as well. Uh, but the fundamental problem with the administration's policy is the president's willful insistence that North Korea has committed to denuclearization on American terms. And the second person I always learn from on these issues, on Korea and on proliferation more broadly, is Vipin Narang, the professor at MIT. And Vipin's point from the start, I think, has been, has been validated every step of the way, which is when the North Koreans say they agree to denuclearization of the Korean peninsula, what they mean is reductions in U.S overall nuclear arsenal, progress under the non-proliferation treaty towards complete global denuclearization, and North Korea as a part of that eventual glorious outcome. They do not mean since the United States removed nuclear weapons from ships and from South Korea in 1992 that, that North Korea will now belatedly come down to zero. I think it looks to me like the North Korean judgment is we've got nuclear weapons so now we and the ability to attack the United States. So now we're ready to talk about how you're going to help us get out of the economic hole we've dug ourselves into. Uh, that sounds that sounds you know pretty much like it. Max, as you look at this from the perspective of um, the person in the next room from Sumi Terry, and also from the perspective of somebody who has been an observer and critic of the Trump administration, what's the Trump factor in this relationship with Korea? What, how is that driving it? Because it seems like um, the, the, the South Koreans are really trying to constructively move things forward uh, wherever they can in the relationship because they benefit directly from it. Um, and Trump has sent nothing but 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 mixed signals, um, uh, you know, from from his earlier position to where he is now. 
and and nothing can be done without him. And yet he's the most erratic actor in this. And so I'm just wondering where you how you think he is going to influence the course of this over the next several years. Well, that's the big question. And he has been, as you say, erratic. I mean, I would say, uh, David, I'm, I mean, and I stress that I'm also obviously like Corey influenced by by Sumi Terry and possibly even more than Corey, because I I do see more of Sue uh, than, than Corey does. Uh, but I, you know, I'm, I'm less bullish on South Korea, I think, than, than some of your comments would suggest, David, although I think it is clear that President Moon does have a strategy. I don't think it's a very realistic strategy. I think what he's trying to do is basically to revive the sunshine policy, of which he was one of the principal architects. Uh, you know, this, this previous South Korean attempt to reach out to North Korea and extend vast economic benefits in the hope that this would lead North Korea to liberalize. And it singularly failed to work in the past. And I'm pretty skeptical that it'll work in the future. But it is true that, that President Moon, along with... Uh, uh, with uh, Kim Jong Un, I mean, they they both have clear strategies, and I think the 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 North Korean strategy was very you know aptly outlined by Corey. I don't really need to add anything to that. Uh, the South Korean strategy, I think, is is basically you know a revival of sunshine policy, trying to extend economic benefits, and also, as Corey suggested, to head off an American preemptive strike, which, as she said, I think terrified the South Koreans. But now, you know, we come to the question you asked, which is, what does President Trump want? And, you know, clearly the, the, the number one thing that he wanted was a summit with, with Kim Jong-un, which he bragged about how many photographers showed up, how much attention it received. Uh, and he clearly reveled in, in, in the glow of publicity. He encouraged talk about winning a Nobel Peace Prize. And of course, in terms of substance, the Singapore summit produced roughly zero because you know, the North the North Koreans did not agree uh, to make any significant concessions on denuclearization. They just used the word and they used it, as, as Corey said, in ways that are very different from what Trump understands it to be. Now, I think that there are people in the administration like Mike Pompeo and, and John Bolton and others who understand uh, the North Korean game, which is basically that they want to string Trump along. And you know, they're, they're doing that very successfully. They're getting sanctions relaxed. They're getting legitimacy on the international stage. And they're getting de facto recognition as a nuclear power, albeit one that refrains from testing its weapons in, in the same way that India and Pakistan do. Uh, and Trump has so far been very happy to go along with that. And he's actually undercut everybody who's tried to put pressure on North Korea. I mean, for example, not too long ago, when Mike Pompeo said, that there was going to be a deadline of 2021 for North Korea to denuclearize, Trump said, oh, well, you know, there's no real timeline. So he is, and, and you know, as, as other administration officials have tried to put, keep the maximum pressure policy in place, Trump says that he's in love, literally in love with Kim Jong-un, which basically sends a signal to Pyongyang that they can do whatever they want. And you see the strategy that, that Kim's regime is employing by attacking people like Pompeo and Bolton as gangsters and basically embracing Trump against his own administration. And so far, that's been a pretty good strategy for him. Trump is happy to go along with it because he is so desperate for a foreign policy win. The question that I have in my mind is, at some point in the future, does Trump wake up and realize that he's been had, that he's been taken for a ride? And what is his reaction at that point? That's, 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 the, that's the question looming over the future. Well, you know, first of all, before I get on to the next question, you did mention that Trump had touted himself for the Nobel Prize. And I thought it was a really expert piece of trolling by the uh, Nobel Peace Prize Committee 
uh, not to give the award to Trump, but to give it to two anti-rape activists. Um, it was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, a kind of, uh, it was kind kind of beautiful. It's somewhat similar to their their choice for the economics award, where one of the winners, um, uh, 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 Bill Nordhaus, uh, has been uh, you know honored for uh, the work that he's done on using economic incentives to fight climate change, something that the president of the United States doesn't actually believe in, apparently. Um, Nothing can be done in North Korea without China. Mm. Uh, and if you want to talk about a relationship that's going through a bit of a rough patch, um, uh, much as I suspect the relationship between Trump and Kim Jong-un will soon, um, you got to look at the U.S.-China relationship, which has had as bad a week as any uh, major relationship of its kind that I can think of in a long time. You know, it started out, there was a confrontation with U.S., a destroyer in the South China Sea with the Chinese. Uh, the Secretary of Defense had to cancel a trip uh, to go and meet with the Chinese leadership because they didn't want to meet with him because they weren't so happy with how the trade talks were going. Uh, the president's chief economic advisor uh, then announced we're about to turn up the heat on the Chinese in trade. And many people interpreted the resolution of the NAFTA issues as a way to clear the path towards turning up the heat on the Chinese. The next day, the vice president of the United States then gave a speech saying the Chinese, not the Russians, are are uh, undermining the U.S. election. Um, uh, he didn't give any evidence because I don't think there is any evidence because the day before the secretary of Homeland Security had, in fact, said there is no evidence of this. But, you know, he pointed out that the Chinese were. Um, putting uh, tariffs on some products that, you know, m you know, would make people uncomfortable in Iowa and other key states as though that wasn't what every country would do in those circumstances. And then Pompeo went over there um, and the Chinese kind of dressed him down. Uh, and Kelly's, you know, this is the most important relationship in the world. And I don't want to minimize, you know, all the Kavanaugh stuff and all the things that are happening here in the United States. Um, but it does, you know, it does kind of disturb me when the, the, the key bilateral relationship on the planet is doing a rapid meltdown. Uh, in fact, in probably in some part, because the Chinese are not being as helpful as Trump had wanted them to be with North Korea. Uh, but also because they're a bogeyman that he used in 2016 and that he uses as elections come up. Uh, and it's worrisome because the Korea thing's not going anywhere without their collaboration. And and obviously there are a lot of other things that they can be um, throw their weight around on in a way that won't help the U.S. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I no one would. Uh, I'm a, pretty much a China hawk. So this is uh, kind of an interesting conversation for me to have right now. I mean, there is a consensus emerging that we need to deal with China on the level of a competitor. And I think that is the appropriate consensus. However, what I'm watching sort of unfold on U.S.-China policy is just the let's just throw the kitchen sink at them and see what happens. There doesn't seem to be uh, very much actual strategy around 
the the substance of the, the policy, but also the sequencing of that policy. I mean, to have some of this going on at the same time you're trying to move the Chinese on North Korea, as you mentioned. Um, listen, I think you're right. It's a boogeyman. Uh, Donald Trump has been obsessed with this issue, especially China trade, for most of his life, um, in addition to J- Japan trade. And, you know, he's come back around to this. And, you know, as you said, this is the most consequential relationship. And we've got to figure out a way uh, to manage competition with China uh, so that it doesn't lead to conflict uh, and that it doesn't actually set back our interests. And that's where I think the Trump administration hasn't done a good job at figuring out how to manage that risk. Um, right now, it just appears to be kind of all in, all in approach. Um, and we can argue the, you know, sort of pieces of it. I mean, I think uh, having a sort of robust response in South China Sea is appropriate. I do think that there are aspects of China's trade policies that are a problem that need to be addressed. Um, but it's sort of how they're approaching it right now, which just seems to be like a reckless, we're just going to throw everything at it and call it a day. Well, Corey, one area where the Chinese have gotten a free pass from the Trump administration, because the Trump administration gives everybody a free pass in this area, has to do with the area of human rights. And we have the head of Interpol going home to China um, in one of the weirdest stories of recent memory. And then... Sending his wife, apparently, a picture of a knife, which she interpreted as a sign of warning, and then disappearing. And then a message from the Chinese saying, you know, uh, we're looking at him uh, for uh, corruption. And uh, Interpol coming out almost instantly with a press release saying, um, you know, per our you know agreements, he's been replaced. You know, I mean, it was just and 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 no, nobody's saying anything. But the Trump administration, you know, it's it's kind of the trifecta for them this week because they didn't say anything about that. Um, a Saudi journalist uh, who writes for The Washington Post named Khashoggi uh, disappeared into the uh, uh, Saudi uh, uh, consulate or embassy in, in Turkey and is likely dead. Um, the Russians keep, uh, you know bumping people off in other countries. Um, and uh, and the Trump administration, which is willing to fight any ally, any place over any issue. Uh, <laughs> well played, David. Well played. Uh, do you want me to just pick yeah, up? From yes. There? Yeah. yeah. Didn't, didn't you hear my lips? My lips is there. That, that was all for you. Over to you. <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I mean, the United States isn't responsible for everything that happens in the world, and a lot of choices have nothing to do with us. So it's possible that the current spate of uh, reckless behavior by autocratic states outside their own borders is, you know, uh, has nothing to do with us. But it is also striking that the United States has nothing to say about it and nothing to do about it. Um, and I think that is genuinely different. And I, I could entertain an argument theoretically that the U.S. has nothing to do with this and therefore uh, we're not causing it. But I can't accept the argument that, that there should be no effect of it. So we may not be the cause, but we but the effect of it is something we ought to take up because we actually 
don't want a world where somebody uh, traveling under, who's living in exile in the United States and working for an American newspaper can be tortured, killed, and dismembered uh, just for walking into a consulate of the country of which he is a citizen. I, I feel like by failing to speak for our values, we are saying this is okay behavior. And I not only don't think it should be okay behavior, I don't think um, most Americans believe it's okay behavior. And the Chinese case is an especially interesting one because, you know, so many people talk about the Chinese being brilliant strategists. They have a hundred year perspective. Our, our friend Graham Allison is, buys long on this line. And yet, if you think about it, um, China behaving in a way that persuades the United States that they are a reckless power, an aggressive power, a destabilizing power, is premature, to say the least, by the Chinese, right? Because it's leading to the renationalization of supply chains. It's leading to the renationalization of science and technology. It's it's leading to the renationalization of capital internationally. And China's a long way. Kelly, Kelly mentioned that, you know, the Chinese economy may overtake the United States in purchasing power parity. Uh, but China's a lot way, a long way from feeling like a rich country. And, and if the political legitimacy of the Communist Party leadership depends, as it seems to, on advancing prosperity, the leadership is making a series of foreign policy and national security choices that are killing the goose that laid the golden egg. And so that's terrible strategy. And when they do big public things like arrest somebody that their own government nominated to run an international policing organization, they change people's attitudes about what they are willing to risk inside China. Well, well you know, oh, go ahead, David. What? No, I was going to watch this. I'm, I'm, I was going to give you a better bridge here because okay. I was going to say Max Boot, author of the fabulous book "The Corrosion of Conservatism," available at fine bookstores everywhere. Uh, you, great have, bridge. Bravo, you, could, David. you could keep saying that. Keep saying that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, as I was saying, Max Boot, author of the fabulous book "The Corrosion of Conservatism." You know, you're dealing a lot with the idea of conservatism in the book and how it has evolved or, or how it should not have evolved. And it seems to me that values-based issues like this cut directly to the core of it. And it's not to say that every Republican administration would be super aggressive on human rights. They tend not to be. But, for example, in addition to every uh, the, all the offenses that I just listed, we also had in the past week a 30-year-old Bulgarian a uh, reporter who was murdered. Uh, and when you st have two reporters murdered in the same week, you do start thinking back to the fact that this president uh, refers to the press as enemies of the people, celebrates people who murder the press. Uh, in fact, appeared just today, the day that we were taping this in front of a police association and had them cheering the idea that the press was an enemy of the people. So that's either a values issue or it's a First Amendment issue. But in any event, it seems, yeah, well, it seems to me to be unconservative to its core. Uh, 
but you've thought about this more in your fabulous book, The Corrosion of Conservatism. <laughs> um, yeah. Wait, yeah. Well, in, in, in my fabulous book, <laughs> The Corrosion of Conservatism, 1648 at finer bookstores everywhere, <laughs> um, I do talk about this. Uh, betrayal of American values. In a, I mean, in a in minute, ways, Corey's going to tell us something yeah. that happened in 1648 that's relevant to the book. There but, you go. Uh, um, you know, I do think that this is a betrayal of what the Republican Party has stood for for decades. And certainly when I was a, you know, a, a, a budding young Republican in the 1980s, I mean, I am. But in some ways, what Trump is doing is kind of a throwback to another strain of realpolitik uh, Republican foreign policy you know, minus the insight, acumen, and skill of a Nixon and Kissinger. Now, I have to, you know, put my cards on the table here and say, me personally, I'm pretty partial to a values-based American foreign policy because I probably would not be sitting here talking with you today in English if we did not have a values-based foreign policy because I probably wouldn't have come to America if we didn't have a values-based foreign policy. My family was one of those families of Russian Jews, refuseniks, and dissidents who were allowed, and we, we came here in 1976 because Scoop Jackson made this an issue. This, you know, this was one of the first great human rights crusades in U.S. foreign policy, the struggle to save Soviet Jewry, to allow Soviet Jews to immigrate from the Soviet Union. This became a bipartisan cause taken up by people, you know, on, on, on the right, like Ronald Reagan and, and uh, in the conservative wing of the Democratic Party, like Scoop Jackson, but also much more liberal people as well. And it was opposed by Nixon and Kissinger, who had this, you know, uh, very amoral, realpolitik viewpoint. And even though Henry Kissinger himself was a, and is a, a Jewish immigrant, a Jewish refugee who found refuge in America, he didn't think that the plight of Soviet Jews should be on the table uh, with U.S.-Soviet uh, diplomacy. And Scoop Jackson and others thought differently. They passed the Jackson-Bannock Amendment, which put pressure on the Soviet Union by tying U.S. trade to their willingness to allow Jewish emigration. And it was, it was a result of that that my family was able to come here in 1976. So, you know, that's why I am very partial uh, personally to values-based foreign policy. But it's not just because it's it's something that's benefited me and my family. I think it's benefited this country. And I mean, when you look at how we won the Cold War, part of it was with military spending and, and, and backing allies. But part of it was also by being crystal clear in exposing the human rights abuses of the Soviet Union, which was something that Jimmy Carter did with the Helsinki Declaration. It was something that Ronald Reagan did when he talked about the evil empire and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This, you know, this kind of values-based approach has been one of the most important tools in, in the American arsenal. In, in tr when it comes to soft power, Trump is practicing unilateral disarmament. And, and more than that, he's not just disarming, he is empowering the worst elements in the world. I mean, when he talks about uh, when he talks about the press as the enemy of the people, when he says that he loves Kim Jong Un, when he says that Putin is very strong and he basically admires Putin, that sends a signal to all these despots that they can basically do whatever they want, and the United States couldn't care less. I mean, and as Corey says, you know, a lot of despots would do bad things anyway. But this is certainly given the green light, particularly I think to American allies, whether it's the Philippines or Saudi Arabia or others, that they can commit human rights abuses with impunity. We're not going to do anything about it. And I think that's terrible from the long-term standpoint, not only of those countries and their peoples, but from the long-term standpoint of U.S. foreign policy and interests. 
So Corey, I, I want to I want to enthusiastically cheer everything Max just said. That was such a beautiful homily, and I endorse it wholeheartedly. Um, I would, however, not want to disappoint David by. I knew, I knew you. I knew right you. Would. In the, 1648 is, of course, the collapse of the Ming Dynasty and the end of the Thirty Years' War with the Treaty of Westphalia. <laughs> well, exactly right. Well, I was gonna. I would put it slightly differently, and I was gonna say, Max, it's a brilliantly chosen price for your book for both of those reasons. <laughs> but I, I think the case could be made: the Treaty of Westphalia is, you know, one of the most important, if not the most important agreement of modern diplomacy since to this day it affects the way the world works um uh you know that you know almost you know coming on now 400 years later so um well done max brilliant choice on the part of you and your um, uh, amazon and i are cooperating to to get the uh, these subtle uh, historical signals across in the in the pricing for the book. Well, it's true. And under Amazon's new payment schedule, even the lowest paid person at Amazon will be able to work for about an hour and six minutes and buy your book. Um, uh, let me let me shift for the last ten minutes here to something that probably we should be talking about all the time. And I turn to you, Kelly, um, because the, the the UN has put out a report that essentially has said that we have to cut emissions by 45% by the year 2030 to keep the adjustment in global temperature to under 1.5 degrees, which is the sort of pivot point, beyond which literally hundreds of millions of people will lose their homes, uh, hundreds of thousands perhaps may die in storms and floods and other kinds of natural phenomenon, and the climate of the world will be irretrievably um, broken from its past patterns. Uh, and, you know, you would think at this particular moment that there would be a consensus uh, led by the world's greatest power to address this urgent issue where there's essentially 12 years to go, essentially a decade to go, but actually less than that. There's actually only two years to go in which you can begin to decommission the coal plants and begin to do the steps. And those last two years actually correspond to the last two years in office of Donald Trump, who doesn't believe in climate change, who has launched a war on, on most of the climate regulations of the Obama era, who is deregulating for the short-term profit, uh, but not taking these things into consideration. And I think it really casts the upcoming midterm elections in the United States in a very, very different light. Because if the United States, which happens to be the only country in the world that is not a party to the Paris Climate Accords, uh, does not step up, um, it's impossible to see how these goals can be met. Yes, it was probably the most terrifying thing I read all week. But this sort of goes back to, to Max's point about some of the corrosion of conservatism. I think the fact that we're still having a debate in the United States about the facts of climate change, the facts of science, and it's somehow become a political issue now. So if you're a Republican, you don't believe in climate change and you tend to vote uh, against those issues. If you're a Democrat, you believe in climate change, you tend to vote for them. I think that's a huge problem because we have, as a country, uh, it's clearly an urgent scenario for the United States to lead. And of course, you know, the president uh, and his administration are doing anything but leading in this space. They're actually rolling back uh, even some of the incremental progress that we made uh, under the Obama administration. And so now looking at that, what, what this UN report is saying is that the 
Paris Climate Agreement wasn't even good enough, <laughs> that it's not even to get us far enough to be where we need to be. And so that should tell you something. And, you know, um, it's interesting. There's there's still, you know, action being taken at the state level. I think California has been a very big leader uh, on climate action. And I think you're going to see more of that um, because we can't rely on the U.S. federal government right now to take action. So companies, states are starting to do things on their own. Well, in fact, if California is the fifth largest economy in the world by size, it can actually make a difference if it's allowed to pursue its policies. But this administration is trying to find legal ways to keep California from being able to enforce its policies. Um, Max, this comes back to a book you may have heard of called The Corrosion of Conservatism. (laughs) I was trying uh, to do the segue. I, yeah, I hear the, the, yeah. the price of 1648. So for 1648, <laughs> after the collapse of the Ming Dynasty. And, um, you know, it, it, it does, you know, as, as Kelly pointed out, get back again to the issue of what is conservatism about. Because, um, if anything, the idea of conservation is linked to conservatism more than just etymologically. Uh, And in fact, the Environmental Protection Agency was founded in 1970 during the Nixon administration. Um, And, you know, the first major conservationist president of the United States was a Republican, Teddy Roosevelt, who led big initiatives in this regard. Uh, And yet we've come to the point um, where the entire Republican Party has unified around a position that the entire scientific community has rejected. And and that that seems, you know, uh, illustrative of your broader point. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a horrifying uh, development, David, but it's, you know, part and parcel of the Republican Party's rejection of moderation and reason and science. I mean, it's not just on environmental issues, it's also on gun control, for example, where the GOP has taken a completely absolutist position that anybody should be have access to any kind of, of semi-automatic weapons of war when even Ronald Reagan himself backed an, an assault weapon ban in the 1990s, something that no Republican leader would do today. And as you mentioned, you know, Richard Nixon set up the EPA, something that Republicans are eager to dismantle today. Uh, you know, Republicans used to be the party of fiscal responsibility, and now they're just willy-nilly cutting taxes and creating trillion-dollar deficits as far as the eye can see. Uh, this is a, a, a serious problem, and it's a long-standing problem. Unfortunately, it long predated Donald Trump, much as I would like to for all that's gone wrong the last few years. I see him as, in some ways, more a symptom than of an underlying sickness, which is the Republican Party's tilt to the hard right, which really began in 1964 with Barry Goldwater's victory uh, over Nelson Rockefeller to claim the nomination. And ever since then, the Republican Party has been going right and right and right, such that by the 1990s, even Barry Goldwater had been left behind. And he was an outlier. He was too liberal for the modern Republican Party. Then you had the rise of Newt Gingrich and then, uh, you know, Sarah Palin, the Tea Party, Ted Cruz, and now Donald Trump. And it's it's this headlong rush uh, to the fringe, uh, you know, looking and I was I have to admit, I was kind of oblivious to this. I kind of went along with this as part of the conservative movement, as an advisor to Republican candidates and a writer for conservative publications until 
you know, Donald Trump came along and that was my wake up call. And I should have seen it sooner. You and many others saw it sooner. But this was my wake up call. Wait a second. There is something seriously amiss here. And, you know, as I've examined it in, in writing this book about the corrosion of conservatism, it's made me realize how deep the problems actually run. And, you know, it's made me, re you know, I used to think of myself as a Reagan conservative, but now I'm actually realizing, well, wait a second, maybe I'm actually a Rockefeller uh, Republican, or as I like to put it, an Eisenhower Republican, because I think, you know, Dwight Eisenhower was one of our great underappreciated presidents whose moderation and, and centrism uh, produced a, a, an incredibly successful administration in the 1950s. And it also sparked a, a revolt on the right. That's when the modern conservative movement was born in a revolt against Dwight D. Eisenhower, which, which shows you, you know, how, how these roots of extremism go way back. And uh, it would be great if, if somehow, uh, you know, you, the, the Republican Party could suffer enough defeats in the near future that we might see a much more moderate party that, that you know, cues to the image of, of Dwight Eisenhower much more so than of, of Donald Trump. Now, that's I realize that's a Pollyannish and unrealistic expectation, but that is my, my most fervent dream for the years ahead. Well, Corey, I'm sure you define yourself as an Abraham Lincoln Republican. Would I be correct in that? <laughs> uh, you know... Any and all of us should claim ourselves to be the intellectual heirs of Abraham Lincoln. No better politician ever served this country. Here, here. But so, so, so let me ask you a question that is a variation on this question about climate change, because I think it's important in the context of sort of nerd nation and how they view this. Um, it, it was very easy in Democratic administrations to make the case that climate change was a national security issue. There had been pushback from some places that said, no, it's not, stop talking that way, et cetera, et cetera. But when you read things like this, where you talk about hundreds of millions of people being displaced or killed, countries' viability undermined altogether, and some, in fact, some countries would cease to exist altogether in these scenarios— it's really hard to discount. And I'm just wondering where you come out on and where you think we all should come out on the idea of addressing climate change as a national security issue. Uh, well, I am by no means an expert on climate issues and don't do any work on climate issues. As one taxpayer's opinion, uh, I did... I did always feel uncomfortable about talking about climate change as a national security issue because uh, I don't think the choices of nations about defending themselves are, are consequential to that problem. I think the effects of climate change are a big national security problem. So are the effects of urbanization. So are the effects of poverty. Um, and I think the reason that I have always felt, although I am one of those conservationist conservatives who believes we ought to be doing a lot more about preserving the environment on this planet, um, I did always feel uncomfortable about putting climate change and other issues into a national security framework for two reasons. First, because I think 
It minimizes all sorts of other tools we should be using to focus on it as a national security problem. Uh, that is, that it looks to me like the majority of tools we ought to be using are social and economic and, you know, the non-national security toolbox. And the second thing was that um, in some cases, people talking about climate change as a national security issue were in diluted the focus on things that I do think state choices that, that diminish our ability to be safe and secure. Um, so, so my own personal view is that we ought to be doing a lot more to preserve this precious island home that carries us around the universe. Um, but but I am a little I am a little uncomfortable about it being seen as a major national security issue, both because I don't think that's where the majority of the tools are, and also because there are major national security issues that I would prefer to see the resources of the national security departments focused on. Um, again, we've come back to about a minute left, and I'd like you know, to offer Kelly the kind of questions that are so sweeping they're impossible to answer in a minute. <laughs> this one, this, this one's... Uh, this ill-equipped on here. No, 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 no. This one, I, I just like to hear your response to what Corey just said. Yeah. Um, but I'll throw in something in the mix from this report. Um, and that is the following. A hundred companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. So it becomes very possible to use precision targeting to have an effect if you want to have an effect like this. But it's very hard to mobilize people unless they have a sense of urgency. And frankly, unless you start talking in national security terms, people tend yeah. not to have a, a, a sense of urgency. Yeah. I, I certainly think, you know, uh, the Obama administration, of course, included climate change as, as a threat to national security and its national security strategy. And part of it was to sort of drive a, a sense of urgency around the issue. I mean, to Corey's point, I think it just comes down to how we define national security. Um, I think traditionally we've defined it as, you know, the security, the defense of our nation, uh, sort of from a physical security aspect. But I do think that national security can be looked at through a human security lens. And I do think in that sense, climate change is a threat. And you see, uh, to, to Corey's point about the effects of climate change, I mean, drives mass migrations, then potentially lead to conflicts, which then would then involve the U.S. Department of Defense. And so I think even within DOD, when I was uh, there uh, in the Obama administration, you know, DOD put out a, a strategy around this issue, in part because DOD was having to, to cope with the effects of these of these things, because, uh, you know, we didn't have the broader tool set that was mature enough, frankly, uh, to deal with the effects of climate change. And so DOD was often called in for natural disasters or uh, had to anticipate uh, conflicts as a result uh, of some of the climate changes. So, uh, again, I think it just depends on how you define national security, and I see it through a little bit of a broader lens, but I understand Corey's precision uh, around the issue and, and wanting to prioritize. So, Well, and I think in terms of the general thrust of your comments, it's there's a lot of overlap, a lot more overlap, and it's, it's, it's really just a kind of 
uh, issue of of semantics. There is certainly a lot of urgency around this. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of uh, time to continue forward with this particular episode of Deep State Radio. I want to encourage all of you to go to deepstateradionetwork.com, join up, become a member, help support what we're doing, help support us doing new stuff like the Deep State Daily and the one-on-one uh briefs and pods and things that we are doing. I'm, I'm going to do one with Max about his book. Um, and uh, so, you know, tune into that. And, uh, and, and, you know, it, you know, we've been doing this now for something like 15, 16 months and, um, and we haven't been running ads and we'd just like a little bit of support from each and every one of you to help us be able to continue to grow. And uh, we've got big plans for that and we appreciate your support. Uh, and as I think Corey will be the first to say, we love Nerd Nation. We do! <laughs> you guys are my voters! <laughs> <laughs> they, well, that's enthusiasm. <laughs> it is enthusiasm, but I got to tell you something. The enthusiasm for Corey is the same. You know, the, the day does not go by when somebody does not show a picture of a Team Corey mug or something to that effect. Tiara of optimism. The Tiara of optimism. I'm so happy. I'm <laughs> grateful for it. And makes all of us so happy, too. So thank you, uh, lifetime holder of the Tiara of optimism, Corey Shockey. Thank you, <laughs> Kelly Magsman. Uh, Max, no one would ever accuse you of being a holder of the tiara of optimism but thank you as well um and uh, we hope you'll all join us again sometime soon on deep state radio deep state radio is a production of the deep state radio network a division of trg interactive media our podcast today was produced in cooperation with goat rodeo productions and was supervised by ian enright join us again for another episode of deep state radio If you don't, we know where to find you.